You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 39. One of the things I love about creating a leadership podcast is that I get to come at it from a bunch of different angles. I have the pleasure of talking with sports people who've extracted lessons and stories from their playing days, politicians, academics, authors, all offering something new, a new angle, a new focus. And for all the people I've had on the show, rarely do I get to speak with a guest so directly about leadership than I did for this episode. My guest is Michelle McQuaid. Michelle is an expert in positive leadership and positive psychology, and in this episode, she delivers a masterclass in how we as leaders can think about our behavior, our development, and the impact we have on those around us. We talk about the things that make a leader tick, the attitudes and behaviors we can all work on to become the best version of ourselves. Michelle has a talent for delivering messages in bite-sized pieces that we can take away with us, ponder, and implement. Now, here at the Team Guru Podcast, we're all about bringing the theory of leadership to life, and this episode is right on the money. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle McQuaid. Michelle McQuaid, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, David. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, Michelle. Now, your topic, the thing that you most like talking about is positive leadership. It's such an attractive term, isn't it? It's something that that no one would say they want to be a part of. Well, not be a part of, although I did have a leader recently, we were talking at one of the large universities here in Australia about introducing more of the uh, research and the practices around this field of positive leadership. And she said to me, well, Michelle, I get all the research. I know it's good for us, but frankly, I'm allergic to the word positive. (laughs) And I don't think her experience is uncommon. Well, I think that there is some natural cynicism about whether we should be positive Mm. at work is that the point of work? Should workplaces be trying to make us more positive? Or is this just a way of sort of getting us to blindly follow where our leaders want us to go and not be too challenging or difficult as we do? And in fact, in the US quite recently, there was a case where the union took T-Mobile to the US labor relations body because there was a clause in the uh, employee handbook about maintaining positive communications in a positive environment. And the union objected on behalf of the employees and said, well, what if the employees then weren't able to express their dissatisfaction with things? And the Labor Relations Board ruled in the union's favour. And so T-Mobile had to remove it. So I think it's really important that while, yeah, for most of us, the idea that our workplaces would be more positive, our leaders would be more positive sounds appealing. I think like anything, you can have too much of a good thing and that there are potential risks related around this that we need to be aware of as we manage this kind of changes in our behaviours. When you hear stories about that or someone tells you that they're they're allergic to word positive, does that break your heart as someone who has professionally dedicated themselves to this field? 
Not at all. It actually inspires me that people are starting to think about these ideas in an intelligent way. You know, I think uh, even sort of five years back, we were seeing quite a move around creating happier workplaces and similar idea, right? You know, who doesn't want to have Mm. a happier workplace really? But there are again, lots of concerns that different organisations and employees were raising with these ideas. And I think like any good tool, you can use it like a blunt instrument. (laughs) And what we want to do with the research and the practices coming out of this field is use them like the intelligent tools that they are. And that means understanding Mm. in different situations for different outcomes, yes, a more positive approach might serve me better, but there might be times where actually, you know, being able to sit in the discomfort of the negative or the fear or the anxiety is actually a really important part of our learning and growth as well. So I think, you know, sometimes we swing the pendulum on a good idea too far one way and then it Mm. risks coming too far back the other. I think the challenge here is what can we learn from these ideas where are they effective? So no, it doesn't break my heart. I go, awesome, let's have that debate and figure out how we make it work. <laughs> hey, Michelle, it's it's a really common theme, the things that you just described there. I'm thinking back to a number of episodes I've had in the past about bullying and resi- resilience and one very recently about workplace wellness. And all of those guests have talked about the honour of their endeavour being tarnished somewhat and as you say, being used as almost a blunt force instrument. Once people grab hold of these concepts, they can become watered down and and lose their real integrity, can't they? Absolutely. I think there's the real risk that where we never intended to do harm, we can actually intend doing harm with these ideas. So I think it's important as we share them that we are open to healthy debate about them and that we figure out, you know, in different workplaces for different leaders for the right outcomes at the right time, you know, what are these tools are helpful for us? Because that's all they are. They're, they're tools, they're ways of looking at things, they're practices that we can use, but a tool is only useful when we apply it to the right kind of purpose. Yeah. Hey, uh, as we talk today, we're going we're gonna to run through what positive leadership it is and the role of positive psychology. We're going to talk about the common barriers in a workplace to being a, a positive leader and what all of that means. And we're going, of course, to give some really tangible, practical advice to our listeners about how they can implement some ideas around positive leadership in their workplace. But before we get to any of that, I'd love to hear your story, Michelle. I know your story, actually. I've done a fair bit of reading on you about the way that you came into the world of positive psychology and positive leadership. I think it's worth talking about. Sure. Well, I spent more than a decade of my career in large organisations like IBM and PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, travelling around the world with them and kind of moving up those leadership ladders. And eventually I found myself in New York in a global brand director role for PwC. And part of my responsibility was to travel in and out of our different offices, 60 different offices around the world, 60,000 people. Every country had its own leadership team and try and get people to try and help people to live the behaviours of the organisation because, of course, it's a services company and so our brand depended on our people and how they showed up for our clients. And as I moved in and out of different countries and I looked at how we tried to change behaviours in workplaces, whereas I looked at how we tried to bring out the best in people to live, you know, pretty standard values like accountability and honesty and those sorts of things, it became increasingly clear to me that perhaps we really didn't know a lot about changing human behaviour because we got compliance to these ideas, but we rarely got commitment. And as soon as leadership moved on to the next thing on their agenda, most people went back to doing what they were already doing. Perhaps because of that, or maybe the timing was just coincidental, 
around that time we'd been in I'd been in that role which I thought was going to be a, my dream job for about 6 months and I was starting to find it harder and harder every day to find the energy and get out of bed I was really kind of dragging my feet into work and it was one of the first times that had really happened for me and I started to wonder you know what was going wrong you know I was in the city of my dreams living in New York mm. had a beautiful young family and good friends I was healthy physically you know, all the pieces of my life were sort of stacking up the way I only dared imagine they would. So why would that not be providing me with great joy and energy and looking forward to it? And so, you know, these two kind of influences, a very professional one, a very personal one, kind of collided at the same time. And we were living in New York. I was sitting on the couch one night after a long day at work, watching TV and having my takeaway dinner out of the container. <laughs> and uh, John Stewart was on. <laughs> when, Very New York. Exactly. John Stewart was on when he still had his show, uh, The Daily Show. And a professor from Harvard uh, came on and he was promoting a new book he'd just written called Happier. But the reason John Stewart was interviewing him was because his course at Harvard had just become the most popular on campus. And it was the first time ever in the history of Harvard that something was more popular than economics. And in the course he was teaching right. was positive psychology. And um, positive psychology, of course, is just the science of human flourishing. And I remember that night kind of sitting bolt upright on my couch and going, what, there's a science to how we flourish as human beings? The idea had never crossed my mind. And so that really started to lead me into this field and trying to figure out what were researchers learning, how could we apply it in workplaces, and how could we use it in our own lives as well. I loved reading about your story, and I couldn't help but think, as I read about you living in Manhattan, the, the city of your dreams, you had a beautiful, young, loving family, you had a really well-paying job, the, the job of your dreams in a lot of ways. I couldn't help but think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You had ticked off so many of those needs and you were very much at the, the pointy end of the triangle, weren't you? The, the self-actualization space. You described finding it difficult to get out of bed and be motivated for what would have seemed to you the perfect place to be at in your life. So it was like you needed to find something more. Absolutely. And I think perhaps, you know, it was that self-actualization step. I mean, you know, I loved my job, but it probably didn't provide a lot of meaning and purpose for me at that stage. And to be honest, you know, keeping up with the life that I created was hard work, <laughs> you know, keeping up the energy to be working in that role, had yeah. me traveling a lot around the world. So I was often jet lagged and young family, you know, you know what that's like running around after kids all weekend. You know, there was a lot going on in life. Mm. And I guess it just wasn't satisfying in the sense that I felt like the work I was doing was great. I worked with nice people, but at the end of the day, I was making the partners of that firm richer. And <laughs> I don't yeah. know that I was contributing a whole lot more into the world. And actually, as I started doing my master's in positive psychology, when I went on to do that studies, one of the things I realized was actually, for me, the point of getting out of bed each day was the chance to make a positive difference for somebody else. And I don't think I'm that different in that aspect. In fact, we see in research that the number one predictor of meaningfulness in our work is that what we do makes a positive difference for somebody. And so initially, I couldn't afford to quit my job. I was the breadwinner at that time in our family. But I was able to refocus my job. I had a little team of about five direct reports to me at that stage. And so I made my job the focus of it about going to work each day and trying to find ways to bring out the best in these people. And that small shift 
made a massive difference for me in terms of starting to be more engaged and finding more of the energy uh, for my job once again. That's a great story. And you answered what was going to be my next question, how you made that transition. And you obviously started some postgraduate study in positive psychology, and that was the path you took. Absolutely. So I went to uh, my boss in New York and I said, I want to go and do my master's in positive psychology, which is a strange enough thing to ask in an accounting Mm. firm, let's be honest. Um, (laughs) And uh, bless him, you know, he was quite interested in human behavior. So he's like, well, okay, where are you going to do it? And I said, well, there's only two places in the world at that stage you could do it. I said, I want to do it at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, because the field's founder, Professor Martin Seligman, is based there. Now, I have a good government school, Tasmanian education, so my boss had a bit of a laugh that I was going to apply to this Ivy League university. (laughs) And he said to me at the time, well, if you can get in, then come and talk to me and we'll figure it out. So I was like, all right, you know, what what do I stand to lose really? I got in and I got a spot, I applied and got a spot. And uh, at that stage, we'd actually moved back to Australia. And the challenge with this was going to be that I had to be in Philadelphia every three weeks for three days for class. And I'm living in Melbourne. So that's about a 21 (laughs) hour one way plane ride. (laughs) So to go to class. Exactly, to go to class. So I was fortunate. I'd come back. I was still working with PricewaterhouseCoopers here in Australia. And I went to my boss here in Australia and I went back to my old boss in New York and I said, look, For a year, I need to be in Philadelphia every three weeks for three days. Would you mind splitting my job between Melbourne and Philadelphia Philadelphia slash New York? Because Philly's only, you know, an hour by train from New York. And I'll come up to New York each time I'm there. I'll do a few days work for the US firm and then I'll fly home. And uh, by the way, would you mind paying all the airfares? <laughs> because it's going to cost me quite a lot of money to fly back and <laughs> That's forth. Bold. Yeah, well, so we made a business case for it, right? We looked at why it was good for me, why it was good for them, <laughs> why it might be good for the firm, and bless them, they said, okay, we're game, you know, go for it. And so that's what we did for a year. It was an amazing opportunity. And, you know, I'd come home from class and start applying all the ideas in my little team straight away and in my own life and my family. I was lucky I was studying the right thing, human flourishing, because if I was studying accounting, I think I would have been fried. (laughs) Um, But it worked and it was an amazing opportunity. And PwC here in Australia got really interested in these ideas and said, well, here are six and a half thousand employees, go and see if any of it works. And so for the next couple of years, they let me transition my role out of a branding and marketing background, which was my technical area of expertise, and begin playing in this space to see what would happen. So it was an amazing opportunity. I love the term human flourishing. It's so descriptive and and really helps you understand what it's all about in those two words. You must be quite the marketer to get all of that across the line. You've done very well there. And I guess one of the features of studying that human flourishing is that evidence is all around you and opportunities to implement the things that you've learned are all around you. If you study something else, like you said, economics, for example, or accounting, You've got to go out of your way to find opportunities to implement that. But this type of thing that you were studying, family, friends, work, everywhere you went, there were opportunities to observe and to practice. Oh, yeah. Nobody was safe. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we do. Uh, I use it with my kids. They'll be in therapy for the rest of their lives because their mothers <laughs> because <of you>. experimented <laughs> on them. That's right. <laughs> I use it in my work all the time. I use it, you know, in relationships and family. And, and mostly for me, I think if you think about that Maslow triangle, you know, th- this work has really been pivotal for me and I think for many others in 
taking that journey of self-actualization and being able to have the confidence to feel like you've got the knowledge and the tools and support to navigate the natural highs and lows in life that we all experience and really learn from what life has to offer. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient, and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. It's really tempting to ask you to give us a little bit more of a detailed description of what positive psychology is, but I'll avoid that temptation and, and shape it another way. We in Australia have just been through a federal election and there's still the aftermath of that rolling on as we record this episode. And of course, in the US, where you and I have both spent a considerable amount of time, they're leading up to the presidential elections later this year. And and we've seen how that's played out with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and, and all of the drama around that. So let's talk about positive psychology through that lens, because I think it's a really interesting one. I just want to ask you very basically, how do our political leaders stack up against the elements of positive psychology or positive leadership? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, there are different views on, you know, what would be the roadmap to being a positive leader. And it's still Mm. something researchers are hotly debating. One of the most popular roadmaps, and it's one I teach a lot because I find it really easy for leaders to wrap their heads around is the theory proposed by my professor, Martin Seligman. And he believes in order to thrive as a leader, um, to really have the kind of impact we want for ourselves and for other people, we need to have well-being. And if we think about well-being in this sense as feeling good and being able to function effectively on a consistent basis as we navigate those ups and downs of work and of life that we all encounter... So he would suggest that in order to do that, there are five things in particular we want to cultivate as leaders. The first is uh, the right level of heartfelt positive emotions. So emotions like hope or pride, interest, for example. And I think actually you mentioned the US. I mean, we saw in Obama's campaign, you know, that use of hope as that positive emotion to really connect people to and being one of the key differentiators for him when he first ran for office, for example. They also, he suggests, need to be engaged in what they're doing, to be able to use their strengths, the things they're good at, and actually enjoy doing as they're going about their work. Now, you can like him or hate him, but you have to acknowledge that Trump (laughs) is actually using his strengths, you know, his ability to um, put out a message, uh, to make some noise, to get people talking, uh, certainly all strengths that he's playing to. Now, we might hope he had some other strengths in there as well, (laughs) but he's engaged, and as a result, he is engaging and people are responding to that as we're seeing in the US. The third pillar is around relationships. And so we need to be able to connect with other people. And in fact, you know, it was Bill Shorten here in Australia when he launched his campaign, who declared he was going to be the man of the people and who really worked to use empathy uh, right throughout his campaign trail to try and connect with people and to, I think, make him a less kind of faceless backroom player that he'd often been up until that point to really help him be seen as a leader. The fourth pillar is meaning. So, you know, again, we want to feel like we know what these people stand for, that they have integrity and that we want to follow them to where they're going. And again, you know, I think perhaps Bob Brown um, and even the Greens, Robert Denali, you know, we sort of saw them in Australia gaining a lot of seats. Uh, Nick Xenophon, another one. 
where there's that real sense of very clear meaning and integrity for what these people stand for and the difference that they want to make. And the last one is accomplishment. So are they actually able to achieve the things that matter to them most? Will they fall down seven times and stand up eight? And look, I don't think politics is an easy arena to lead in. And particularly, I think we're seeing a lot of the challenges around the democratic political system when it comes to accomplishing the things that matter most to our leaders. And so I'm going to say, I think on grit, most of them do a pretty good job. And I'm not sure many of us could actually stand up to the number of times these leaders have to fall down and pick themselves up on the other side. So those are Seligman's sort of five pillars that I think it's helpful, whether we're political leaders or leaders in our own companies or, you know, leaders just of ourselves to think about how they play out for us. They sure do do a good job of getting up when they're knocked down, don't they? Because all of the things that they're involved in play out on the world stage or the national stage at the very least. It must be so tough to read all your stumbles or foibles and mistakes or gaffes, as they like to call them, on the front page of the national newspapers and see it on TV a hundred times. It must be a really tough environment. You have to be so resilient, right? There's yeah. nowhere to hide. Mm, um, that's right. And I think, you know, part of what we know is really important in that accomplishment piece is being able to practice what Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford University describes as a growth mindset. So this is where we define success, not so much just by the outcomes we achieve. And again, I think Bill Shorten's a really interesting one on this at the moment, where they lost the election, but Bill's claiming himself a winner. <laughs> and so rather mm, than it just... It is interesting. Yeah, rather than it just being the outcome, you know, yes, we came first of, you know, can we set our goals for success around the learning and the growth and the development that's coming? And it's really the only thing that lets us be resilient enough to keep getting down, you know, time after time, particularly in a very public domain like this to go, okay, I can learn from that. I can grow. I can get better. Let's keep moving. (laughs) You've been very kind to our political leaders because you've given an example as we've been through each of those five pillars of political leaders who are good in that area. So much of the the language, though, and so much of the commentary suggests that our political debate is fairly negative, though. Is that an unfair assessment? Do you think that they actually do a pretty good job of being positive leaders in their situation? Or do you agree that that there's a fair negative taste or a flavour to both US and Australian politics? It's such an interesting question because in some ways I wonder how much of that is the politics and how much of it is the media reporting you know, again, very few of us are close enough to these leaders or, you know, members in their teams to really know what these people are like on a day in, day out basis. And instead, our understanding of them is very much cast through the lens of the media. And let's be clear, the media mostly make money off reporting negative stories. Um, in fact, there yeah, is a whole field of positive journalism now trying to address it because they're realising the impact that it has on countries' uh, levels of well-being as well. So, look, I think in any in all of us, there is good and there is bad, right? There is good, the right intention. And again, I don't think any of these leaders go out to do what they do with necessarily a bad intention at the heart of it. I think they're trying to be the best leaders that they can be. But I also think for all of us, there's always the places we can improve and get better. I think, you know, Turnbull is an interesting example. So when uh, he came to office, so around October uh, last year, One of the editors actually at the Australian newspaper here in Australia, Paul Kelly, wrote a really interesting article about sort of Turnbull and the kind of leader he was and what he was going to stand for and really talked about 
Turnbull saying, you know, one of the lessons he'd learned in politics was that he was going to slay hatred and embrace positivity. And Mm. at that stage, the media commentators, well, Paul in this case, was saying, you know, this is transformational and it's such a different stance for a leader to take. And even though media commentators are laughing at him, you know, cynically, you know, here's Turnbull and he's saying, what gets me going is positivity. Now, roll that forward to the very near miss that Turnbull has had on losing the election. And again, you know, Paul Kelly, even just a few weeks ago, is saying, you know, the Prime Minister has to realise that positivity alone is not enough. And I don't disagree with that point of view. I don't think that necessarily positivity alone is enough. But I do think that if you simply succumb back to a negative form of politics, where does that leave us as a country? And so I think there's the role the media play and there's the role our politicians choose to play in all of this as well. And and take Shorten as the other side of that example, you know, with Medicare, you know, and the kind of scare campaign that they ran there, or Medi-Scare as it became known. And you can see that real uh, competing power in each of us around the fears and and what we think people are going to save us from and the hope and what we hope and what we want people to be able to build and grow in us as well, you know, playing out in a very public arena. I get so disappointed as a political observer, as much as I am, decreasingly as it happens, I get so disappointed in the the way that politics plays out in front of us, it feels so negative. You've done a good job of changing my mind slightly, though, because they're in such a tough situation. I often wonder to myself, what if someone rose to the top, to the leadership position of one of the two major parties, and just refused to be negative in any way, only spoke positively, refused to get down in the ditches and and fight those kind of turf battles and those I guess they're almost tribal, the way that they discredit each other. I wonder what would happen to such a politician who just steadfastly refused to be negative. It's never happened in my lifetime. Some politicians are more positive or more negative than others, for sure, but there's never been just someone who refuses to get dirty. Do you think such a politician could survive or do you think that the game insists that they they can't be that way? It's an interesting challenge, right? And again, you know, if you look at Turnbull's early days when he took the prime ministership, he was trying to find ways to negotiate win-win outcomes, you know, around some of the trade deals that were happening Mm. at the time and things like that. And, you know, has he paid for that potentially with his party? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Bob Brown, you know, is an interesting example of a positive politician. You look at what Bob Brown was able to achieve over the life of his career. I think most people, even those on different side of politics from Bob and who may not like the things he stands for, you know, would acknowledge the integrity that he had as a leader. And in fact, I think there's a quote from Gray and Richardson kind of saying that he's the cle- probably the cleverest politician in Australia. And the thing that makes him even more dangerous is he's a decent fella and I believe in, and he believes in what he's doing and that's a powerful combination, this belief and ability. And then there was another lovely quote I saw in a review of some of Bob's work by another writer who was saying, actually, he's not very well liked by other politicians because he represents everything that they're not. He's a man of conviction, a thoroughly honest man, a man of principle, and they see in him what they want to be and they hate him for it. And so, you know, (laughs) you know, I think, you know, there are examples. I think, you know, the rise of people like Nick Xenophone was interesting in this election Mm. because, again, I think he's recognised as a leader who is renowned for his integrity. And so 
what Gallup have found in their research of the most influential leaders in the world, whatever field they are, politics or business, is that there's four things we really want from these leaders. We want a sense of stability from them. So we want them to be consistent in themselves. We want to feel like we can trust them. We want to feel like they get us, that they can be compassionate for our situations. And we want them to lift up our sense of hope. So do I think a political leader of one of the major parties could do those things consistently? Absolutely. And I think perhaps in his ways, and again, not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with his politics, I mean, Bob Hawke in many ways delivered those four things. But, you know, I think it can absolutely be done. I think it should be done. But I think we would all benefit as well as a population and a country if we tried to figure out where our leaders are doing well and celebrate and appreciate and recognise them for that and encourage them to do more of it rather than just picking them to part all the time. Oh, you're so positive, Michelle. <laughs> You've just put me in my place as a negative observer. <laughs> Not and <at> hey, all. <laughs> I love your five pillars and I love the four things that we expect from our leaders. I'll just go back over them for our listeners again. The five pillars of positive leadership are heartfelt positive emotions, to be engaged and, and use your strengths, authentic relationships, so developing authentic connections finding a sense of meaning and actually accomplishing the things that you set out to achieve. And the four things that we expect of our leaders is stability, trust, compassion. So their ability to empathize with the position that we're in. And of course, hope. They're great, really tangible, make a lot of sense. I like them. And as much as I love talking about politics and I like looking at politics through the lens of leadership, let's bring it closer to home for our listeners and talk about People who are in an organization, people who are running their own business, people in jobs that we can relate more closely to rather than than politics, someone's endeavoring, if they're really conscious of their own leadership journey, they want to be positive, they want to be a great leader, but the reality is that when they're at work, those eight or nine or 10 hours there through their workday, there's so many things that are vying for their attention. What are the common barriers that we will all face if we're trying to be a really fantastic, positive leader? Oh, great question. (laughs) You're so kind. It's a really good question. I think one of them is simply we feel pulled in so many different directions for our time. And I, you know, watch many leaders just struggle to look after what I call the hygiene factors of well-being, the eating, moving and sleeping kind of stuff. And we underestimate, I think, how much impact that really has on our own productivity, but on our people around us as well. And so, you know, we know that losing 90 minutes of sleep a night, you know, the next day you're far less productive. In fact, I think there was one study where if you lost three hours of sleep during the night was the equivalent of going to work the next day having drunk a six pack of beer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I think, you know, the first thing is we, we often, when we're in leadership roles, we really feel that weight of responsibility. We've got lots of people needing our time, wanting our time. And so it's really easy to start to cut the corners around those things, you know, to eat dinner, you know, out of the takeaway container at the end of the day in front of the TV, rather than nourishing our body with some better food to miss out on sleep, to skip the exercise because we're too busy and we've got too many meetings to get to today. So I think that's probably one and and it's one we probably underestimate because we don't appreciate how much that impacts our brain's ability to perform. I think the second thing, and I find this with many leaders, is that you know, there are so many things to get done as a leader and there's all those things on our to-do list each day. And we often end up starting to put relationships and spending social time with our teams or our people more towards the bottom of the list. They're that nice to-do thing, 
and not the have to do and really has to be reversed. I think looking after our people is actually the job of a leader first and foremost and Mm. all the rest of it is detail. But if you don't look after your people, everything else becomes so much harder than it needs to be and then you spend all your time troubleshooting people issues as well. I think the last one in there is, again, we probably don't really appreciate as leaders how much our mood impacts the performance of employees. I don't meet many leaders, I have to say, who have a mood strategy for their business. Mm. (laughs) And yet Dr. Daniel Goldman's research suggests that 20 to 30% of business performance is determined by the mood of our employees. So imagine improving what your business was able to do by about 20 to 30%. And the number one predictor- Just from mood. Exactly. And the number one predictor of their mood is their leaders. So we're highly contagious as leaders. And that doesn't mean we have to paint on a fake smiley face all the time um, because that doesn't do much for trust either. But it does mean that we need to be quite uh, mindful and intentional about how we manage our moods and the impact that that has on people around us. So I'd say that there are three of the ones that I see most common that are small fixes that we can make as leaders, but we often underestimate the impact they're having. I love those, Michelle. Geez, you're full of wonderful little two, three, five points. It's fantastic. Just the right number that we can digest. You got me thinking there. When you talked about your second, talking about relationships losing priority, you made me remember my greatest leadership shame. I spent the beginning of my career was in education. I was a classroom teacher for 11 or 12 years. And then at the end of my time in education, I was a deputy principal for three years And I don't know if you know much about the role of a deputy principal or our US listeners would think of them as a vice principal. It's a very busy job. You're you're the right-hand man or right-hand woman to the the principal. You often get the work that they don't want to do. It's it's a really busy job. The beginning of the day, especially, you've got teachers who are away. You've got to get supply teachers to cover them and cover their playground duty, all that stuff. You can't get in early enough when you're a, a deputy principal at a school. And I remember there used to be this really lovely grade five teacher. She was the soul of the school type teacher, you know, been there 20 years. She used to make a point where every morning when she arrived at the school, she'd come by my office to say hello every morning. But I always felt so busy, so under pressure to get the things that I had to do done. I was really rude to this poor lady. I used to give her the clear sign in my body language, I haven't got time to talk to you. I used to turn away from her, face back to my computer, to the work that I thought was really important at the time. And now that I look back on it, I I feel a tremendous sense of shame because she was doing the thing that is most important in a workplace. She was connecting with me as a person. Mm -hmm. And I I was making that biggest mistake you can make in a workplace, thinking that the little bits of pieces that you've got to do are more important than the connections that you have with the other human beings in the workplace. Absolutely. And I do. I think it's a really sh- one common shame. So I don't think you're alone. I think you'd be in yeah. really good company. And two, again, I think it's one of those pieces as leaders, we just underestimate the impact that it has. But we mm. are incredibly social creatures and we all share the same deep psychological need to feel respected, to be appreciated and valued. And as leaders, it costs us nothing to give, right? It's a few minutes of, hey, how are you? How's your day? Thank you so much for doing that piece of work for me. I really appreciated this about it. And you're on your way. But the impact that you could have had on that person's well-being, their engagement, their productivity in those few minutes that it takes to give that feedback is massive. And I truly believe that gratitude is probably the most underutilized business resource we have today. 
Yeah, couldn't agree more. As I say, it is my shame. It was that was the year twenty ten, and I still think about it. I reckon I think about it most weeks. Something <laughs> reminds me of it, and I feel this shame. But to her credit, she she kept turning up every morning and continued to try and have a conversation with me. What a woman! Now the other one that you mentioned there was, of course, mood affecting employees. I I love that work from Daniel Goldman, and isn't it amazing to think that we could improve workplace effectiveness by twenty or thirty percent simply by as a leader, being in a better mood, a more positive, active, engaged type of mood. It's phenomenal. And the reason that this has such an impact is what we're seeing in the latest neuroscience is that mood has a major effect on the way our brains are performing. So when we're experiencing more heartfelt, so again, not fake it sort of stuff, but Mm. heartfelt positive emotions like joy or interest, pride, amusement, what we found is that it actually broadens our brains. So we take in more of what's going on around us. Our field of peripheral vision takes in about 75% versus 15% when we're in a neutral or negative mood. It floods our brains with the feel-good chemicals of dopamine and serotonin. And these are really important when it comes to thinking creatively and innovatively and a bit more outside the box. And because it helps our brains to feel safe, we think more in terms of we and a little less about me. So we're much better Mm. at collaborating and working together to figure things out than when we're in a negative mood. And again, it's not to say that a negative mood doesn't have its place. If you want to get someone narrowed in and focused immediately just on what's in front of them and thinking a little selfishly about it, which at times you may need them to do, then a little anxiety or fear is no bad thing. But just understanding that mood does very different things to our brains. You take the most basic thing of bringing your team in for a meeting. How often as leaders do we think about where do I need their brains for the conversation I want to have in this room today? I've pulled everyone away from their work. Think about all the money and the hours for us to be in this room together. But where do I need their brains? Because they've come in in all different states. So even just a simple thing Mm. like asking, hey, what's working well at the moment? What are people enjoying? What are we looking forward to that's coming up this week? Those little appreciative questions can make a massive difference in terms of mood as you get a meeting started that then helps you get on and do the work. It doesn't mean you don't do the difficult things or have the hard conversations. It just means you do it when you're in that broad and thinking space, thinking more about we and less about me, rather than sort of throwing people straight into the fear and anxiety. Hey, Michelle, you mentioned neuroscience there. That was something that I wanted to talk to you about. Now, we obviously haven't got time to delve into everything you know about neuroscience, but give us an idea of what's some of the low-hanging fruit. When you went and started to discover the world of neuroscience, what really grabbed your attention and thought, wow, that's great? The biggest aha for me was understanding how our brains work around our strengths and our weaknesses. And this reflects the comments I made Mm. about, I think we should be valuing our politicians' strengths more because they're our best hope for our country's future. So neurologically, a strength actually represents the way your brain is wired to perform at its best. And so over time, as you practice different thoughts, feelings and behaviours, your brain starts to build up those neurological pathways that makes doing those things easier, more energising, more enjoyable, and you're better at them. So really simple example, think about if I asked you right now to pick up a pen and write your first name in your dominant hand, you'd probably do that without having to think too hard about it, wouldn't take a lot of energy, you'd probably be reasonably happy with the result. If I got you to swap that pen into your non-dominant hand, the one that you don't usually use, and wrote your first name again on that page, you'd probably have to think about it a bit harder, probably take you a bit more effort, take you a little longer. And I'm going to guess if you 
like most people I do this exercise with, you'd be laughing at how bad it is compared mm. to your other option. And it's a it's really fun, isn't it, to watch people do that? <laughs> it is. And it's a really easy way to understand what's going on in our heads with any of our strengths or weaknesses. So when you first learned to write your name, it didn't come that easy, right? Somewhere along the way, a teacher like you made us practice doing it again and again and again. And so over time, those neurons, the cells in our brain started wiring together into the neural pathways. So today you can do it without thinking twice. But when you write your name in your non-dominant hand, those cells in your brains, those neurons have not yet built up into that kind of neural pathway to make that behavior effective and energizing and engaging for you. And so this is why, and I think this is so true in workplaces, but all other parts of our lives as well, we really want to be figuring out what our strengths are and finding ways to build and grow those strengths more as we go about our everyday activities. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore your weaknesses. (laughs) Um, What it does mean is that naturally your brain is also wired with a negativity bias. So you're generally much better at spotting your weaknesses and feeling a very evolutionary pull to fix them. (laughs) And so we estimate that (laughs) in most workplaces, we spend about 80% of our time fixing our weaknesses and only 20% of our time building our strengths. And I think the political commentary would probably reflect the same thing. What we want to do is try and swap that equation so that we spend about 80% of our time building on our strengths and 20% of our time, if a weakness really poses a risk to you or it's getting in the way of the work you want to do, by all means, go head on at it. Or if you've got a weakness in an area that's become really meaningful and important to you and you're committed to getting in there and doing the practice and the work to improve it, then go at it. But be realistic about how long that might take because you are wiring your brain. And while we're still debating hotly how long that might require, some estimates are that it could be something like 8,000 to 10,000 hours, which would be a couple of hours every day for about eight to 10 years to really master a new behavior. So I think strengths is a big one that we all need to know what our strengths are and to look at more ways to develop them. I love it. And regular listeners to the show would have heard me talk a lot about Tom Rath's Strengths Finder based on the work of Dr. Donald Clifton. I love it. I love the, the idea behind it because exactly as you said, we're wired to focus on our weaknesses and try and become this impossibly well-rounded person. Whereas everything that we know about, as you say, neuroscience tells us that we'll get so much more out of investing in our strengths, the things that we're naturally good at and making ourselves really awesome at those things than we will out of trying to bring our weaknesses up to a C grade standard. So I love that whole concept. It's really attractive. But I I also love what you talk about is flipping it around. So we're spending 70% of our time on our strengths and still 20 to 30% of our time on our weaknesses so that we're so that we don't have these glaring holes that are going to do us harm. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely an and and Tom's tool is awesome. StrengthsFind is an amazing tool for identifying your talents which tend to be the Mm. what you like to do in your job. So being a great communicator or a great strategic thinker. One of the other tools I love in this space as well, and I often use them together for people, is the free VIA survey, which people can get at viacharacter.org. And this is a 10-minute survey, and it helps you identify your character strengths, which tend to be more the how you like to work. So there'll be things like curiosity and kindness, humor, perseverance, for example. And so I find that can be really interesting to map those two together to go, okay, this is what I like to do. These are my talents, but Mm. these are my character strengths, my values, the how I like to work. 
And finding ways to use them both can be great, and each of them as standalone tools are also really helpful for people. Oh, that's great, Michelle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hump that one down. Thanks for that little tip. <laughs> Hey, uh, Michelle, something else that I found really interesting is that you're studying your PhD at the moment in appreciative inquiry. Now, this is, I've never heard that term before (laughs) until about three weeks ago when I I spoke to Karen Rounds for episode 32. She mentioned that same thing. Can you remind us what appreciative inquiry is? Yeah, so I'm doing my PhD with the founder of this field at the moment, who's an amazing man called Professor David Cooper Ryder. And David really started looking at how do we create change in organisations? And what he discovered, same thing as what we found about our individual performance, was mostly we focused on what wasn't working and looking for ways to fix it rather than necessarily looking for Mm. the things that were working and trying to find ways to build on it. So just like we have strengths and weaknesses, organisations and systems have strengths and weaknesses as well. So appreciative inquiry in a nutshell is simply a strength-based approach to creating change. And these days, you can absolutely use it in organisations. So Kofi Annan, for example, when he was leading the United Nations, worked with David to use this as a way to help the top 2,000 CEOs around the world create a global compact sustainability agreement. And the Dalai Lama has used it with the world's religious leaders to try and help them figure out what they have in common rather than just what they have that separates them. And schools are are using it. I work with schools in Australia all the time using this as they try to think about how they introduce more positive psychology practices into education for kids. But you can also use it for yourself. And uh, so one of the stories I love from uh, David Cooper Ryder was he was uh, trying to lose weight. He travels all over the world all the time. So he's constantly on planes, hard to eat well, how to exercise regularly, changing time zones. So think about Mm. that eat, move, sleep challenge. And so, you know, his health was getting worse and worse. And so he decided, well, you know, I need to change my diet. I've got to cut all these things out. I've got to fix all these things. And he's like, no, 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 I'm doing what I tell everybody else not to do. So he started trying to figure out if he started eating to thrive, what would that look like? And so he started, you know, trying to do four very simple things that we always do in appreciative inquiry. The first was to discover when it worked, what did it look like? So we think about eating to thrive. When he was at his healthiest (laughs) or when other people around him were healthy, even though they were traveling a lot. So he was pulling people over into airports and asking them these questions. You look really fit and healthy. What do you eat? (laughs) Um, So finding the strengths first, discovering the strengths. When it works, what does it look like? The second step then is to dream of what's possible. So if I could consistently build on those strengths in my situation, what would success look like? Six months, 12 months, whatever time period from now. We know these positive images of the future neurologically pull us forward into action. The third D is around designing the pathways forward. So once you're clear what success looks like, how are you going to get from here to there? And so what were the things? So he decided, you know, okay, um, he got really into the green smoothie stuff. So, you know, he'd be making these big containers of green smoothie to take with him on planes and things like that wherever he went. And then the fourth D is to deliver on it or to deploy it. So I call it the skin in the game test. What are you actually going to do to create this change? And often here we're looking for really little steps because we know change happens in small moments. And by building confidence that you can create change, it allows you to keep stepping those moments forward until they become something quite significant. So that's appreciative inquiry. Oh, I love it, Michelle. I lo- lo- like I said earlier, I love the way you give us these four and five point things. It's really great. It's really easy to digest. Very helpful. All right. Now, I haven't got many questions left for you. I'm going to let you go soon. 
But I do want to come back to something you brushed up against earlier in our conversation. You wrote a really great piece for the Huffington Post about the dark side of workplace happiness. It's easy for us to focus on the positive side and and that makes a lot of sense and we must do that. But you have identified the dark side. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, look, I think, you know, like any good idea, you can take it too far. And we were talking at the outset that a tool is only as useful as when you use it in the right situation. So, you know, I think there is a risk here that by insisting our workplaces be more positive, that we unintentionally do harm, perhaps for people who aren't feeling positive in themselves, whom then may Mm. feel that there's something wrong with them. You know, one of the things I'm always cautious of when I teach these ideas into workplaces is to say, I'm going to share with you lots of science today, but even the best science about human behaviour only tells us what works for some of the people some of the time, and you're going to have to figure out what works best for you. So one of the most tested and successful positive interventions you can get someone to do is to keep a gratitude journal to write down at the end of the day three things that went well. And there's study after study, different groups and different populations that this can be beneficial for. I personally hate keeping a gratitude journal. <laughs> it does nothing for my well-being. It bores me to tears. <laughs> I'm grateful, but in other ways, that exercise for me doesn't yeah. work. So I think part of the danger here is that we need to give people choice. We need to help them become informed consumers of their own well-being to share what we're learning, the insights and the tools but really encourage them to trust what's right for them rather than doing something just because somebody told them it would be good for them and leaving them feeling on the other side of that, that, well, there's something wrong with me. If I hate doing a gratitude journal and it's meant to have all of these benefits, then what does that say Mm. about the person that I am? So I think that's one part of it. I think the other is being really mindful of different situations that you're in. You know, if you're downsizing in an organisation, trying to go out there and be rah-rah positive during that time could be completely lacking in compassion for what your workforce need. Now, some beautiful examples, uh, you know, uh, Bob Quinn, who's at the University of Michigan, has in this space of using some of those virtues like forgiveness and honesty that can absolutely mean that downsizing can be done in a very human and compassionate way. But, you know, being positive and upbeat in those moments, I think would be probably not a good thing for you as the leader or for your people in that sort of situation. I think the other one is, you know, just being aware that, you know, what is the strategy that you've got as an organisation and what are you trying to achieve? So what are these tools as effective there? Don't just try and do it all at once, but really select intelligently. What is the tools that's going to work best in our culture, for our strategy, the way our systems and processes are set up, you know, the things that our people are wanting and that they will respond to. And that's where we'll often use something like an appreciative inquiry summit, we call it, where we bring everybody into a room to be part of that conversation together and we co-create those kind of changes or we co-create the strategy going forward so that it's shared and it reflects the organisation rather than something we've taken off the shelf or out of a book and then applied it without being sensitive to the context and the outcomes we're trying to achieve. The article that I'm referring to there, your article, reminds me of a book I just finished reading. It was Nikhil Saville's 
cubed the secret history of of the workplace and the book finishes of course with the the silicon valley campus type thing mm-hmm. that that we all love to hear about and he talked about the dark side of that in the same way that you did and he used google as an example now we usually only hear positive stories coming out of that google type setup but he said that there's almost this atmosphere of forced fun They've got the basketball court set up and there's all these hangout areas and the cafe where food's free and you can work anywhere you like. But there's this downside of, as I say, forced fun. And I, it was the first time I'd ever heard anything negative come out of those environments. So so that's a, a very worthwhile warning from both you and, and Nikhil. Now, to finish off, Michelle, I just want you to try and summarize all the fantastic points that you've made. If we were to give the listeners just a couple of things to walk away with. That aspirational leader who wants to be better at what they do, what can they change just two or three or four things that will have the greatest impact? So your well-being as a leader matters, not just for you, but for your team and for the people that you go home to. So I think prioritising our well-being, that opportunity to feel good and function effectively on a more consistent basis, is probably the easiest but the most important place to start. You can see how you're doing in Seligman's pillars that we talked through, those five pillars. Um, mm. If you head over to PERMA, P-E-R-M-A-H, survey.com, there's a free survey tool there that I've created along with some of uh, Marty Seligman's researchers. And it'll tell you, how am I doing in each of these? It'll let you set a little wellbeing goal for anything for the next one, two or three months. And then based on that, it'll serve up some of these tested interventions researchers are finding may be beneficial so that you can select what works for you. And a bit like a Fitbit for your mind, when your goal time's up based on what you've chosen, it'll ping you and say, hey, come back, see how you went. Let's make any adjustments you need. What do you want to try next? So I think that's a really easy way to begin um, being more mindful being more intentional and just finding little things. These don't have to be big changes. You know, for me, I found even just 10 minutes a day of using my strengths of curiosity, which was one of the ones that for me came out of that VIA survey. When I was in that funk in New York, 10 minutes at the start of each day, learning one new thing using that strength was enough to create this ripple right across the rest of my days and then to find what was giving me meaning in my work and to create a whole series of changes that have led on from that time. So one, I think be aware of well-being. Two, whether you use that free tool or something else, be mindful of where you're at. And three, play with how you improve it and keep making it better for you so that you build your own toolkit that works for you, works for your organisation and can be shared with others over time. Awesome stuff, Michelle. Rightio. Now, I'm going to let you off the hook after my next three questions. Almost always, I finish my, my episodes with my guests by asking them these three, three questions. Are you ready to go? They're really quick. Go for it. Everything you've done in your career, your professional career, Michelle, what's the one single thing you're most proud of? Oh, what an awesome question. Uh, we've recently started running a positive parenting series in some schools in Australia And you see not just the parents' eyes light up as they get these ideas, but they come back the next week and they tell you what they did for their kids and you go, that was a great day's work. Oh, that's cool. All right. Now, what's the one thing that you know that you wish everyone knew? I wish everybody knew what impact wellbeing really has in terms of their brain's ability to perform and their ability to build great relationships with other people. None of this stuff is rocket science. In fact, they're probably things our grandmothers told us to do, but I just wish that we trusted it a bit more. And I think the science sometimes makes it easiest for us to trust what intuitively we already know we should be doing. 
Fantastic. Very last question. In terms of professional growth, what's the one priority you're working on right now? To keep learning. I think that was one of my big ahas when I was stuck in the job in New York and not loving it was I'd stopped learning. I'd reached a level of technical mastery and I hadn't realised how important learning is for all of us. Our brains are wired to learn and keep growing throughout our lives. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's learning a new language, learning an instrument, learning a new theory, learning about positive psychology, but whatever lights you up, whatever naturally grabs your interest, keep investing in the time to learn. Don't ever consider yourself done. Michelle McQuaid, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. You had so much great stuff for us to walk away with. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, David. And that was Michelle McQuaid. As you would have noticed through our chat, I loved the way Michelle was able to take complex ideas and theories and break it down into three or four or five memorable dot points. The five pillars of positive leadership, the three barriers that leaders face within their role, the four things we expect of our leaders, and the four Ds of appreciative inquiry. I will, of course, share these handy insights and the other lessons I took from my conversation with Michelle. You'll find it on the podcast page for this episode on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. I'll also leave some links to where you can find Michelle and her work, as well as links to all those handy free assessments she spoke about during the chat. And if you like our little podcast, please do me a huge favor, jump on iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. It all helps us spread the word and bring more listeners on board. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Stitcher. I'll be back next week on this, my mission to bring to life the principles and theory of team and leadership development. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.